Well, good morning, FBC. Uh, it is great to be with you for Easter. Uh, this is not the way that we thought we'd be together, but uh, that's okay. We are together in the way that matters most. We together declare the reality, the truth, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, this is about plan Q for me. Um, obviously, plan A was that we would all be together at church, but uh, plan B was for me to record this at sunrise this morning outside uh, in our garden. And uh, after about three hours of technical difficulties, um, sunrise was long gone. And so I finally gave up and said, I'm going to do this inside. But there's a reason that I wanted to do this in the garden. And that's because the garden is a wonderful picture of life and growth in the handiwork of God. And it's interesting to me that Easter actually begins in a garden. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 20 this morning. We'll look at the whole chapter. But if you go back a couple of verses to the very end of John 19, what it tells us is that after Jesus was crucified, he was buried in a new tomb, and that new tomb was in a garden. So Jesus, on that first Easter morning, steps out of a tomb, a symbol of death and decay and destruction, and he steps into a garden, the picture of life and beauty and the power of God. And that's the contrast that is so remarkable at Easter. Well, what we're going to do this morning, as I said, we're going to walk through John chapter 20, and we're going to focus on different encounters with the resurrected Jesus and how those encounters change him. So let's start in John chapter 20, and we'll stop as we go along the way and just highlight some things that are going on here. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And, and we know that that's John, the, the one who wrote this gospel. And Mary Magdalene said to them, they have taken away, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. I want to pause here for a second because we need to remember what this was like from their perspective. See, we have the full benefit of scripture to help us understand the significance of the cross and the resurrection, but but they did not yet understand that. And so from th for them, the cross must have seemed like a catastrophe. And then discovering that the tomb was empty would have been a bizarre twist on this catastrophe. 
See, there are many ways that you could have interpreted what was going on, and we see that here, right? Mary, Mary thinks that this is human doing. She thinks that someone has has stolen the body, and John, it says he believed, so it doesn't tell us fully what he believed, but it seems that he indicated that, uh, that he believed that Jesus would rise again, but yet we don't know where he took that from there. In fact, what we see is his reaction is that he and Peter just go back home, and, and in a few verses, we're going to see that they're behind locked doors afraid. So just discovering an empty tomb, as important as that is, isn't enough. You see, an empty tomb is, is an extraordinary fact. It's an amazing fact. It was an undeniable fact. But it was a fact that just needed to be explained. What matters, what becomes life-changing, is when they encounter the resurrected Jesus. And that probably seems obvious, but I think it's important to stop and make that point, to make sure that we're focused on the right thing. We don't want to just stop and marveling at the fact that the tomb was empty. We need to also make sure we go the step further and encounter the resurrected Jesus. Because as we see as we continue encountering the resurrected Jesus, it, it, it replaces our tears with joy, it replaces our fears with peace, and it replaces our doubts with confidence. And we see that as we continue, and we have the story of Mary Magdalene encountering Jesus, and that picks up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And think for a second about what that must have been like for someone like Mary to be with fully God and fully man on a daily basis. What was it like for her to watch his teaching? What was it like for her to, to see him perform miracles? What, what was it like for her just to have a conversation with him or or, or to share a meal to the degree that, that they did. It would have been extraordinary. It would have been awe-inspiring. It would have been comforting and challenging. It would have been the sort of thing that assured her that her life would never be the same again, and in fact, the whole world would never be the same. And so what was it like for her to suddenly and violently have that taken away. And what was it like for her 
to have to watch as someone she loved so dearly suffered so deeply. We have to step back and remember these things because to understand the depth of her joy, we need to remember the depth of her loss and the grief that came with it. You see, every Easter, we come into Easter and we have experienced loss over the previous year. And this year is different, not because we don't experience loss, but because every one of us is experiencing in some form the same loss. And we all have different versions of it. And the whole range of experience is extraordinary, but all of us are going through everything that's come with the coronavirus and uh, isolation and social distancing and stay-at-home orders. And we are trying to uh, deal with the grief that comes with it. I think many of us know people who uh, we care about who they have lost loved ones and they cannot come together as friends and family to weep and grieve and comfort one another. But the range of loss uh, goes beyond that and, and is from the small to other things that are significant. Uh, people have lost jobs and, and that's not just a loss of income, it's a, it's a loss of purpose and, and direction of where they're going. People have lost vacations and trips, and, and, and there's a loss associated with that in terms of lost rest and, and rejuvenation that they had looked forward to. We've, we've had graduations canceled and, and birthday parties canceled, and there's, there's lost celebration that people had anticipated. And of course, just the dramatic changes that we've had into our routines and our structures, we, we've lost those things that, that we have relied on to make us efficient and effective throughout our day. And, and some of those things are small, but some of those things are huge, and each one has its own form of grief that comes with it. So I think it's worth asking the question, what is it that Mary encounters in the resurrected Jesus that helps move her beyond her tears? Now, the easy answer is that, that she has restored to her what was lost. And, and that's an important answer, and in fact, as we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that part of the, the ripple effect of the resurrection, it will ultimately culminate in the restoration of all that has been lost. But I think there's more going on here, right? Because remember, Jesus even tells her that he's going to be leaving again. In fact, that's her message to the, to the disciples is that he is going to be ascending to the Father. So it's not just that Jesus is restored to her for a few days, Jesus is revealed to her. The person whose miracles she has watched and teachings she's heard and conversations that she's had with him, that person that she was in awe of, her awe has now expanded as the curtain has been pulled back even further. Because this Jesus is the Jesus who conquers the greatest loss that anyone ever faces, and that is death. This is the Jesus who can still overcome what no man before has overcome and reach out to her with compassion and care and concern. You see, Jesus wasn't just restored for her. Far more importantly, in the midst of her loss, he was revealed to her in new and deeper ways because he was the resurrected Jesus. Now, I think it's important for us to, again, as I mentioned earlier, not go through Easter 
and not and pay attention. We need to pay attention to how Jesus is being revealed to us now and how he is being revealed to us in the midst of whatever form of loss we are encountering during this time. Now, as the passage moves forward, Jesus deals with a different type of emotion, and this is the emotion of fear. And we see that in the disciples who are behind locked doors. And we pick up that story in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The disciples were afraid, and that's understandable. They had every reason to fear that the Jewish authorities would do to them exactly what they had done to Jesus. And so because of that, they do what frightened people do. They hide. They're paralyzed. It's really not possible for them to go forward because of their fear. And in the midst of that fear, Jesus appears to them. In the midst of the fear, Jesus overcomes death and a locked door. And what I think he gives them in that moment is a very different picture of who the authority really is. And he does that by giving them three other things. He gives them peace, he gives them purpose, and he gives them power. Right, it says twice in the passage that Jesus says, peace be with you. And, and we know that was a common uh, greeting of the day. It, it might have even been the equivalent of us saying, hi, how are you? But in that moment, I think that common greeting took on whole new significance. Right, this is a person who has overcome being crucified. He was buried. He was dead. And now he stands suddenly despite a locked door in their midst in front of them. If, I th if I'm one of those people, one of those disciples, I think the first word that I need to hear is the word peace, to overcome the terror and confusion of that moment. And that's what Jesus gives them. Now remember, peace to them was not just uh, the absence of conflict. The word peace meant to them thriving, flourishing, in their relationships with God, in their relationships with one another, and, and even within themselves. And, and here is someone who has overcome death. And what he is doing is he is offering them what he uniquely can give them. Peace, flourishing, thriving. Jesus also offers them purpose. It says here that as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see, Jesus came on a mission that came from his father. And now he is also sending these disciples to carry on that mission of representing the character of God and representing the salvation that comes through Jesus to an entire world. And there is no greater purpose that we can go on. And here's the thing that's remarkable. It doesn't matter what's going on in, in our lives, what type of loss we're experiencing. That purpose can never be taken away from us. And God continues to work that purpose in our lives 
because Jesus is alive and at work. The last thing Jesus gives them is power. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, if, if you forgive any sins, those sins are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, then forgiveness is withheld. And, and, and that promise of the Holy Spirit is the promise of, of God's power to work in them and through them to accomplish the mission that Jesus has sent them on and to retain the peace that Jesus has given them. But also remember how they would have heard those words in that first moment. You see, who has the authority to give the Holy Spirit? No one, except for the creator of the universe, God himself. Who has the authority, who has the right to forgive sins? No one, except God himself. When Jesus makes this statement, what they would have heard and connected and realized is that Jesus is representing he has the power of God because he is God, because only God can bestow the Holy Spirit, and only God has the right to forgive sins or delegate the ability to forgive sins. You see, they would have realized that standing in that room was an authority that was greater and more powerful than any authority in that city, any authority in the Roman Empire, any authority in the entire universe, except God himself, because it was God himself that was standing in that room. And so let's, let's ask ourselves this, this Easter, what is it that we think is the highest authority in our lives? Do we think it's a virus or a job or government restrictions? Those are, those are all influences and authorities and, and are extremely important they're not the highest authority. The highest authority is the one who overcame the grave, overcame death, and gave the disciples what he gives us, peace, purpose, and power. The last encounter with Jesus uh, on that day is with Thomas, and that's an encounter that concerns doubt. And we pick up that story in verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, fear paralyzes, but so does doubt. See, if you don't know what's true, how can you possibly move forward? And so there's a real sense in which Thomas was just as paralyzed as the other disciples. And Jesus steps into that moment and appears to him, and he gives to Thomas first exactly the same thing that he gave to the other disciples, a firsthand personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. But then he gives Thomas something that he did not give the other disciples. He gives him a command, and and I think it's, although it's in the form of a command, I, I wonder if it's actually more of an invitation. 
Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, why does Jesus need to say this, right? Thomas has been a faithful follower of Jesus all along. And, and here is the greatest proof that Thomas could ever need to believe. There's, there's Jesus right in front of him having a conversation with him and, and, and showing him the very wounds that, that, that Thomas had wanted to see. And, and yet Jesus still extends this command or invitation. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You see, I think what's going on here is Thomas needed to internalize at a very deep and personal level the truth that he declares when he says, my Lord and my God. There's a reason that Christians have celebrated Easter every year for centuries. And that is because every year we need to stop and focus and be reminded of what Thomas has declared my Lord and my God. And you see the evidence that's in front of us that we've experienced this past year, this past month is overwhelming. And if you stop and think about how Jesus has worked in the midst of our loss and has still worked and brought joy and revealed himself, to think about the peace that he has given us and, and the purpose that he's given us and the power that he's given us, we, we can think of events and instances in our lives even over the past month that we've been dealing with this virus. The evidence is overwhelming, but we still need to stop to be reminded and to internalize the way that Thomas, a faithful follower of Jesus did, that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Now, John ends the chapter with an invitation that really is an invitation to all of us. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is an invitation to life. It's an invitation to abundant life. It's an invitation to eternal life. And it's an invitation to believe that we may receive that life. Now, look, you may be a um, longtime faithful follower of Jesus, just like Thomas was. But we need to once again declare that we believe. And that word believe, just it means to have confidence. We need to declare that we have confidence in the midst of loss and craziness and, and all of the uncertainty that we're facing right now. We have confidence that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Now, you might be someone who's participating in this just because that's what you do on Easter and you recognize that it's a good thing. And, and that's terrific. I'm, I'm delighted that you are doing this. But don't do this and miss the invitation. The invitation is to life. Life abundantly now. And eternal life. In the enjoyment of an unbroken relationship with your Heavenly Father, for, for all of eternity. And the way that you enter into that life is just what it says here. You believe. Well, what is it that you believe? You believe that Jesus is who he says he was. He is fully God, fully man. And you believe that he did exactly what he said that he would do. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. And by dying on the cross, 
everything that separates you from God, everything that you know in your life is wrong and a rebellion against God, was placed on him, and he took all the punishment for it. And what's remarkable is that everything that was true about him, his perfect righteousness, gets placed on you, and when God looks at you, he says, not guilty. But the story doesn't stop there, because the good news of the gospel also includes the resurrection. And the resurrection is the power of new life that is at work within us, transforming us to be more like Christ. And that is the abundant life that's promised. And that resurrection will ultimately culminate when we have eternity face-to-face -face with God and with Jesus, knowing him the way that we were meant to know him. That's the invitation. So you've got a couple of buttons on your screen. One of them, if you're if you are not a follower of Jesus, but you're interested in going down that path, it, I'm not sure exactly what the button says, but I think it's an indication of you want to put your hand up for salvation or something along those lines. Uh, hit that button. Let us know. We we definitely want to walk with you through that journey. Uh, if you're someone like Thomas, who's a longtime follower of Christ, but the losses are overwhelming and you are experiencing grief, and you're experiencing fear and doubt, um, we want to pray with you. And there's a button actually that uh, is on your screen that allows us to pray with you, and we'll do that online. And, and we'll keep the service going for a little bit longer, uh, so we'll have a chance to do that if, if you haven't asked for that prayer yet. Uh, but we definitely want to uh, support you and, and be praying for you. We... Um, we're staggered by the contrast between the tomb and a garden. That is the power of Easter that moves us from death and decay into life. And that's really the point that we have as we celebrate Easter. That through the resurrected Jesus, we find abundant life and eternal life. And no loss, no circumstance can take that from us. Would you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we have been reminded today of your love and your goodness and your power, that you pursued us by sending your Son who died on the cross for us, but death did not have the victory. And so we celebrate today because three days after he was crucified, he was raised again. And he appeared to Mary, and in appearing to Mary, replaced tears with joy. He appeared to the disciples, and in appearing to them, he replaced fears with peace. And he appeared to Thomas, and in appearing to him, he replaced doubt with confidence. And Lord, we ask that you would do the same for us. In the midst of our loss, and at this time of Easter, give us a greater awareness of who you are. Lord, help us to know more clearly more deeply that Jesus is alive, he is risen, and he is at work in our lives. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just wrap up by reviewing what have we said about who God is. This is what we've said. Our God is the God who replaces tears with joy, revealing his son Jesus more to us in the midst of loss. Our God is the God who offers peace and purpose and power when we face fear. And our God is the God 
who can replace doubt with confidence. And so your assignment as we leave here and as you enjoy the rest of your Easter is to reaffirm your confidence that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Have a wonderful rest of your Easter.